Amen. The heavens declare the glory of God, and so shall we. Would you stand with me as we sing, worship, give adoration to our God this morning? Sing with me. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw to praise the Lord this beautiful Lord's Day. Amen. It's good to see each and every one of you here this morning. And I'd uh, like to especially welcome any of those who might be visiting with us. And if you are, we would ask that you take the care card that is in the pew back in front of you. 
and fill that information out and you can put it in one of the boxes that's on the table in the foyer of the sanctuary here or you can hand it to one of our staff and we would just love to, to get back with you but we we thank you uh, that you've been visiting or that you've come to visit with us today and uh, we'd love for you to come back uh, also on the opposite side of that care card is a place for anyone uh, to write a prayer request and if there's something that you would want our staff to pray for you can also put that on that card and then they give that to one of us. So, but we're thankful that everyone's here today to gather uh, to worship on this beautiful Lord's Day. Just a, a couple of announcements. Number one, our Thanksgiving service with a meal is coming up on November the 21st. Uh, the meal will be at five o'clock and uh, the service will follow. Uh, the tickets are $6 a plate and they are actually available to purchase today, and they will be through November 17th. Uh, so if you plan on coming to that meal, go ahead and get your tickets so that we can know how to be preparing and how much food to prepare. Uh, if you want to come just for the service, uh, you may do that as well, and that will start roughly around 6 o'clock. Also, uh, don't forget that uh, our boxes for OCC are available for pickup in the sanctuary lobby right out here, and we will collect all of those here in the church on November the 14th with the collection week following through the following Sunday, which would be November the 15th through the 22nd. Many ways that you can be involved in this ministry. And of course, uh, I'm sure Shannon Gardner would love for volunteers to, to help out during collection week, November 15th through the 22nd. So if you have some time to do that, please see her and let her sign you up for a slot to help. Um, so, uh, this past Wednesday was a, a great big hit. Uh, we had an incredible time uh, reaching out to our community with our trunk or treat. Probably one of the biggest uh, events that we've had uh, on, uh, for a fall festival that, that I can remember. Uh, we probably served between 1,000 and 1,200 patrons. Uh, and then, um, so it was just amazing. So thank you to everyone who decorated a car, handed out candy, made cotton candy, popcorn, uh, puppets and clowns. Just, it was a collective effort and it was a blessing to work together, serve the Lord together and uh, see such a great uh, amount of people come uh, for our fall festival this past Wednesday night. Um, just as a reminder, um, there are no evening activities tonight. So we hope and pray that you use tonight even to reach out to your neighbors and uh, as they come to your door trick-or-treating to share a good word with them. Uh, so we encourage you to be involved in ministry that way. Next week, don't forget, uh, it's an important week, uh, we gain an hour of sleep back. Amen. That's right. So turn those, yeah, there's some applause going on. I hear it. Woo, praise the Lord. Yeah. Uh, make sure you turn those clocks back uh, on Saturday night. So that's it for the announcements. But I would like to call uh, attention to our chairman of deacons, Cordell Compton, and he's going to come with a special announcement as well. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. I'd like to ask our deacon body vice chair, Mr. Jack Treadway, to come up and assist me with this. And in that process, there's some folks I'd like to call up here. We were going to be up there, but uh, we're not going to do that. We don't need to navigate the stairs this morning. <laughs> uh, I don't need to make a 
spectacle of myself more than I normally do, so we're not going to do that. Pastor Scott, would you join us up here? Pastor Seeger, Pastor Knight, Pastor Jonathan, if you want to, you know, come down and go back up and come down, you know, whatever. There's always one in the crowd. <laughs> and Miss Amy and Miss Laurie, please come up. It's been almost 30 years since the tradition, if you will, of recognizing pastors and ministers. But you know, If you've run across these folks after class, in the hallway, during other meetings, you don't have to wait for a special time to recognize them. Just come up to them and say, I appreciate what you're doing. I stand with you. I want to work with you. And I'm praying with you. That doesn't take very long and you don't know how much that would mean to these folks in Ephesians chapter 4 and I promise I'm not going to preach so keep your seats don't run for the exits and I'm definitely not going to sing so <laughs> keep your seats Paul was writing and he mentioned the ministry gifts that Jesus gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And back in those days, they did not have punctuation in the manuscripts. But even if they did, and if Paul had put a period after that, that would have been good. But he went on to say, for the edification of the building up of the body of Christ. That's what our pastors do. And then in Romans chapter 12, he mentions, Paul mentions other gifts of ministry. Encouragement, mercy, teaching, and leading. And I don't know anyone else besides Miss Amy and Miss Laurie that do that in their respective ministries. So we wanted to recognize these folks this morning. So Jack, if you would pass out these gift bags to these folks.
Thank you, Jack. Ladies and gentlemen, the ministry gifts to the body at Pitts Baptist Church. asked me to pray over these folks, so let's bow in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that Jesus gave us ministry gifts. And right now, for each of these folks, we just pray over them in the name of Jesus. Thank you for their gift, for their sacrifice, for their diligence and for their dedication to the body of Christ here. Help us stand by them. Hold up their arms. Lift them up in prayer so that they can continue to minister to us. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you. I think I would speak for all of our staff that we thank you for being such a wonderful place to serve. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your willingness to help, and for um, just caring for us all these years. I talk to guys around the state who don't have a caring church family, and I so appreciate that you are. Thank you. Let's sing together. Would you stand as we continue in worship, enjoying his fellowship as we sing together here at Pitts? Let's sing. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the one. Jesus, my Savior. 
there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your Tower of refuge and strength, let every breath, all that I have, never cease to worship you. Oh, shout to the Lord, all the It's grip on me. You have broken every chain. 
there's salvation in your name jesus christ my living hope hallelujah praise the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name jesus christ my living hope. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to
You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan and choir. Well, I'm going to begin this morning by doing something that I never want somebody to do to me when I'm a visiting preacher. When you're a visiting preacher in, in a church, you want to come in incognito. But uh, I want to recognize somebody this morning. Sammy, it's good to have you and your wife here. Would you stand just briefly and just introduce yourself and your wife? <laughs> I don't either, they would say. great to have you folks with us this morning. Years ago, how many years ago was it I had the opportunity of preaching a revival for the folks up at uh, Hopewell? And Diane Medlin's sister is a member there. I always love having uh, fellow pastors in the service. You know, not all do. In fact, we have a retired pastor in our congregation right now, and I'm not speaking of Dr. Willis, but another retired pastor who joined us about two years ago, he said, uh, Scott, is it okay if my wife and I attend church at Pitts and, and even join Pitts? And I said, absolutely. We would love to have you. He said, well, I just wanted to make sure. He said, I visited a church in the area, and the pastor met me in the parking lot afterwards. And... Uh, said, you know, I really don't like having pastors in my congregation. <laughs> and Dr. Cooper said he thought, okay, I guess you won't see me here anymore. But anyway, so not all pastors enjoy that. I love having pastors who have faithfully preached the Word of God uh, in our congregation, visiting with us and even becoming a part of our fellowship. So welcome this morning. Let me also... Uh, echo Jonathan Turner in thanking you for being the group of people that you are. It indeed makes all the difference in the world. It does. And on behalf of all the staff this morning, let me also thank you for your love and care for us that's very evident. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for our staff here. So thank you. Uh, also, as Kevin Knight said, thank you for showing up uh, Wednesday night. They kept running to me and said, Scott, pray that Jesus will divide the, will multiply the loaves and the fishes. <laughs> uh, and he didn't do that, but the Lord did provide runners for us who could keep going down to Walmart and buying candy. Uh, about three different times, the officer that was here said, yeah, y'all had it probably at least a thousand if not more come through here and so thank you for your help in that and as Kevin said all those who decorated uh, cars and and went to such lengths to make uh, that evening such a such a success uh, you should have in your hands this morning a single front and back page and guys upstairs I'm getting a little bit of ring in the monitors I don't know if you're hearing that just kind of a, a high-pitched ring if you would maybe address that for me I sure would appreciate it but anyway uh, you should have a front and back page this morning because folks 
Uh, today is a very special Sunday in church history. Now, if I were to ask you what today is, 90% of you would say, it's Halloween. <laughs> but far more important for believers, it's Reformation Day. Because 504 years ago, to the very date, as we're going to see this morning, something very significant took place in church history that has radically altered the way you and I come to church and worship today. So I want you to understand the importance of it. And it's not going to be a history lesson. I'm going to go over history in the introduction only before we get to our text. Because I want you to understand the context of this day. And the context of the passage that I will be reading this morning uh, as it relates to church history since uh, 1517. So I, wanted, I do want to give you some history uh, of, of that for that reason. But right now I'm going to ask you to, to turn in your Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be all over Romans 1, 2, and 3 this morning. So kind of put a finger in all of those pages. And I'm asking a question this morning. What's the big deal about October 31st? And I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to begin in verse 14. Romans 1, beginning there in verse 14. Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Turn over to chapter 3. Begin with, with me in verse 9. Paul begins by asking a question then. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now look over at verse 20. Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Father, we thank you so much for the way that you have worked not only in our own lives, but you have worked in and through the church corporately through the ages. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to Simon Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, the church is certainly not a perfect organization. The church often has many warts and blemishes. But Lord, you discipline us, you refine us, you teach us. You lead us in the paths of righteousness for your namesake. And we're so grateful for that. You've called us to be salt and light to a lost and a dark world. And Father, I do pray that you would continue to conform us to the image of Christ. That we can be effective messengers of the good news of Jesus. Thank you for the giants in church history that we stand on their shoulders. Again, men and women who certainly were not perfect, who had many flaws in their lives, and yet through your grace, you used them. And they furthered the witness of the gospel to their culture. May we do the same. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Folks, the church, the church of the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages, the church in the Dark Ages was steeped in a spiritual darkness of its own. You see, the scripture was inaccessible to the common man because it was only available in Latin, which was a dead language by that point. And so people would come to church, but they would have no idea whatsoever what, what was being said or taught or preached. And consequently, they had to rely upon what the priest and the pope was teaching them, which was oftentimes not accurate and not in keeping with the Word of God. Now bear with me for a few moments this morning as we talk about the beginning of the Protestant Reformation and we're going to get around to our scripture this morning I promise but you need to understand the world in which the reformers existed if you are to understand the impact that the book of Romans had on Martin Luther and others. Let's begin, though, by going back about 175 years before even Luther himself. Let's go back to the days of John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was one of the first to be a protester, a Protestant, because of the fact that the average man or woman did not have access to the Bible in their language. And so what did John Wycliffe do? He took on the task of translating the Bible into the language of the people. 
Now you would think that Wycliffe would be a hero and highly esteemed for doing this. But instead, those who were in power branded him as an instrument of the devil himself. And they abused him. And they hated him. They slandered him. They called him a heretic. And they stripped him of his professor of divinity degree that he had earned at Oxford University. In fact, Wycliffe was so hated for giving the people a Bible in their own language that 30 years after Wycliffe was dead and buried, you know what they did? They dug up his bones and they burned them. Now folks, if people dig up your dead body 30 years after you've been in the ground, they burn what's left, they must hate you pretty bad. Now if John Wycliffe was a criminal for giving people the written word of God in their language, it was John Huss who was viewed as a criminal simply for preaching the word of God in the language of the people from the pulpit. Instead of preaching in Latin, again a dead language that nobody knew, instead of preaching in Latin, he began preaching in the language of the people and you can imagine what started happening. As word got out in the community and the town where he served, people began flocking like crazy to the church and they were filling up the pews, they were filling up the aisles. In fact, on occasion, John Huss would preach to as many as 10,000 people people at a time they were starved for the word of God well church authorities became very concerned they ordered Huss to stop to recant his words but of course he refused and so they arrested him they put him in jail and on July 6 14 15 at 5 p.m. in the afternoon they burned him alive at the stake Now you know the phrase, your goose is cooked, right? I think we've all heard that. You may wonder where it comes from. Well, it comes from John Huss being burned alive at the stake. His name, the name Huss, means goose. They cooked the goose. Now let's fast forward in time. In the fall of 1515, Martin Luther began lecturing at the university on the book of Romans. And he found that he ran into trouble almost immediately when he got further into Romans chapter 1. And what stopped him was verse 17, where Paul says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther had the concept, the medieval concept of an angry God who was out to punish and zap the sinner at a moment's notice. In fact, in Martin Luther's previous years in the monastery, he would often freeze himself almost to death. He would enter into prolonged periods of fasting. He would do all sorts of other harsh things to his body, thinking by doing all of that, he could somehow or another appease the wrath of God and win God's favor. Well, as he read Romans 1.17, all he could think about was the righteousness of God and how he personally could never measure up to this. 
But then as he studied this passage more and more, he came to the realization that Paul was not simply speaking about the person of God when he used the the phrase the righteousness of God. Rather, Paul was talking about the imputed righteousness of God that God confers upon the sinner through the sinner's faith in Jesus Christ. An imputed righteousness. And Luther said it was like the gates of paradise had been opened to him and he finally understood for the first time what the Bible was really teaching whereby a sinner is born again and all of his sins, past, present, and future are wiped clean and forgiven. Now that experience, that new birth experience is what is referred to as Luther's tower experience. When he first understood the gospel and felt himself to be born again. Well, immediately on the heels of that, Luther saw the problems with the church. And what the church was teaching. You see, the church's understanding of grace was that the grace of God is extended to the sinner through the observance of sacraments. You know, in Baptist life, we call them ordinances. We have two of them, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, in the medieval understanding of the sacraments, you go to church and it doesn't matter what's in your heart. doesn't matter what you believe. doesn't matter if you're repentant or not. You go to church, you take part in the sacraments, it's very mechanical. The grace of God is extended to you through the observance of the sacraments. And Luther saw how wrong that was. He came to understand how traditional church teaching was in conflict with the scripture itself. Now a second point that bothered Luther so badly was on the issue of authority. To the Roman church, the source of authority was not only the scripture, but also the traditions of the church and the rulings of the popes and the teachings of church councils. In fact, the church would even place the rulings of popes above Scripture itself. A pope could come along and issue an official statement, and it didn't matter if it conflicted with the Bible or not, the pope's statement would be elevated to a place above the Word of God itself. And Luther said, this is not right. The scripture and the scripture alone is the sole authority for the church. But what really bothered Luther so much was the sale of indulgences. On February 24th, 1517, from the pulpit of his church in Wittenberg, Luther condemned indulgences because, as he charged, they encouraged sinning And furthermore, they kept people from truly knowing God. You see, according to the church's tradition and teachings at the time, Christ, Christ, earthly mother, Mary, and many of the saints had lived such holy lives that they said there is a treasury of merits, a savings account, if you will, 
in heaven that the rest of us can draw from. When you die, because you sinned in your life, they taught you would go to purgatory and have to suffer in purgatory until your sins had been completely paid for. Well, I hope you can see the problem on several levels here. First of all, Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus paid for our sins completely. And we can't add anything to what he has done. Also, the Bible does not even teach the existence of a place called purgatory. But the church said through purchasing an indulgence or through viewing relics of the church... You say, what's relics? Well, they claim to have things like a twig off of the burning bush back from the days of Moses. So by purchasing uh, an indulgence or viewing relics, uh, they said you could lessen the time that you spend in purgatory. In fact, through through paying to to view relics or, or purchasing an indulgence, you could reduce your time in purgatory by up to 1,902,202 years and 270 days. Where did they get that number? I have no idea. Maybe Sammy can tell you. <laughs> the church needed money. Because the church had committed to building uh, St. Peter's Basilica in, in Rome. And added to that, there was a guy by the name of Albert. Uh, Albert of Brandenburg had gotten in over his head trying to purchase the bishopric of Mance. And so indulgences began to be sold in Germany. Half of the money was to go to Albert to pay back his loan and buying his bishop position over a region. And the other half would go to the building of St. Peter's. And then a man by the name of Johann Tetzel comes into the picture. He was a Dominican monk. He was quite skilled at selling indulgences. And folks, it was like a circus when Tetzel came to town. He would come into town with his large entourage. He would build a big bonfire in the center square of town. And he would start preaching the most tear-jerking sermons. Ron, your poor, your poor mother, you were conceived and... And you grew in her womb and she gave birth to you and she nursed you and she took care. Your poor mother is suffering today in purgatory. Don't you want to pay your mother back all that she's done for you? Buy an indulgence and, and get her out of purgatory. Ron, don't you want to do that for your poor mother who loved you so much? And see, they didn't have the scripture to fall back on. They were trusting what church people were telling them. And so, sure, people would buy indulgences to get their mother out of purgatory or whatever else. Tetzel even came up with a little jingle. When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Well, here you have Martin Luther. Recently converted through reading the scriptures. And here you have the church of which Luther was a part. He was a monk and a professor of theology for the church. 
But all of this was too much for Luther to take. How could he simply stand by now that he knew the truth, he knew the gospel? How could he simply stand by and do nothing? And so on October the 31st, 1517, 504 years ago today, he walked up to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and he nailed there a document, the 95 theses that he had written. Now at that point, Luther didn't have any idea of separate. He wasn't wanting to separate from the church, break away from the church. He was hoping this document of the 95 Theses would begin a discussion that church leaders would see how wrong they had been and, and they would come to understand the scripture as Luther had. He just wanted to open up a discussion on the matter and see things changed. But Luther was ordered to recant. And he refused to do so. And so in June of 1520, Pope Leo X issued a papal bull, an official papal ruling against Luther, excommunicating him from the church. And the papal bull against Luther started with these words, Arise, O Lord, and judge your cause. A wild boar has invaded your vineyard. Well, a few years later at the Diet of Worms, after being threatened with a fiery death if he didn't recant, Luther said, unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures, then I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. And so folks, today I, I want you to understand the tremendous debt that you and I owe to the reformers. What the reformers sought to do can be summed up under five solas. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Uh, be the glory. Those five statements summarize what the reformers were all about. And again, I want you to understand if it were not for them, how very different church would probably still be for you and me today. Now with that in mind, let's turn again to the scripture that kind of helped kick this whole thing off. And the first thing I want you to see with me this morning from Romans 14 to 17 is the gospel's power that changes lives and eternities. Read it again here. Paul says, beginning in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so right off the bat here, Paul is setting the table. 
He establishes the wonder of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. The rest of the book of Romans is going to flesh out what he's talking about there, right there in that verse. Now I want you to notice what he says there in verse 14. He views the work of getting the gospel out as an obligation or a debt. Folks, what do we owe the world? Surely those who have been transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, those of us who've who've experienced what it means to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as we look at a corrupt and a dark and lost world, one thing we owe this world, if we don't owe them anything else, one thing we owe them is a testimony that Jesus Christ can change their lives even as he changed our lives. Getting the good news out Celebrating like we did last week A mission Sunday Folks that's what we're all about Getting the gospel out Paul says that's the obligation That I owe to the world Think about debts Our national debt is what? Now about 29 trillion Think of your own family's debt But those are not our greatest debts. You and I have a greater debt. We have a debt to tell others about Christ. And Paul always saw himself as a debtor in this sense. And verse 15 here we see his eagerness over this. He wanted to go to Rome and preach Jesus. One way or another he wanted to get there. It was a surprising way that he got there. He didn't think he was going to get there probably by being a prisoner. But he rejoiced even in that. He wanted to go to Rome because you see the Roman Empire was the most powerful empire of the the day. And Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire. And so he wanted to get to Rome with the gospel. And why he was so eager in that again because of verse 16 here. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation. For salvation to everyone who believes. Because of what God does in and through the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the reading of the gospel. The way God's Holy Spirit gets a hold of people and transforms them from the inside out. There's power in the gospel. And so Paul wanted to go to the most powerful city of the day and speak the gospel so they could be transformed, hopefully even as he was transformed. Folks, the gospel is good news because it points out that God's Son, Jesus Christ, died in your place. He died that you might be forgiven of your sins, that you might be reconciled to a holy God. And he rose again, the first fruits of those who were raised And first fruits is promise of more to come. And so through him, those who are forgiven, they're going to be raised and we're going to be with them in heaven one day. The gospel is good news. Because without the gospel, without the gospel of God's intervention, nobody would be saved. Nobody. None of us. There's power in the gospel. 
And I think of the ways on the pages of Scripture we see that being demonstrated. There's this Ethiopian eunuch has been up to the temple to worship and he's, he's going back to Ethiopia riding in a, a, a chariot through the desert. And Philip is commanded by God to go and speak to him. And the Ethiopian eunuch just happens to be reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip begins with that text and leads him to Jesus Christ. I think of Lydia at Philippi meeting with a small group down by the river. Paul preaches the gospel there at Philippi. Lydia, a businesswoman, the first convert in Europe that we know of uh, when the gospel was going west. And the scripture says of Lydia that as Paul was preaching the word of God to, to them that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe. I think of the Gerasene demoniac in Mark chapter 5. Nobody could deal with him. Lived among the tombs. Jesus went to that area. And those demons in that Gerasene demoniac approached Jesus. They, they cried out to Jesus. Jesus delivered the man. And all of a sudden people saw that Gerasene demoniac seated quietly and clothed and in his right mind. And everybody marveled at what had been done. The power of the gospel. Do you remember when you first heard? When you really heard? When the Holy Spirit pricked your heart, convicted you of your sin, drew you to faith in Jesus Christ? Do you remember when you were changed from the inside out? Do you remember the power that, that God brought about in your life when He changed you? I hope you remember that you may not remember the exact day or time but I, I hope you can remember that general period when that happened in your life when you became a new creation in Christ there's power in the gospel the gospel transforms have you experienced the transforming power of the gospel What a shame it would be on this Reformation Sunday when we talk about Martin Luther, a religious monk being radically saved by the power of the gospel. And here you are, you hear about him, you hear these verses that changed his life, you hear about all of this and you walk out of here this morning and you're still lost. What a shame that would be. That would be a tragedy. Secondly, I want you to see man's predicament that places him in far greater danger than he realizes. Look again with me in chapter 3. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Folks, man cannot convert himself. Jesus said to a very religious man, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the law cannot do that. Righteousness 
does not come through the law. The law only points out our sin. It's like a mirror that shows us what our sin is. But just like the mirror itself cannot comb your hair or put the makeup on your face, just, just like the mirror can't do that, the law can't save. All the law can do is point out the flaws. And we need the law to do that. As Paul said here, we don't try to diminish the law. We uphold the law because the law is going to show us how much we need the grace of God in Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 and following that it is through the preaching of the cross, through the preaching of Jesus that God saves. And yes, to the Jew this is a stumbling block and to the Greek it seems like foolishness, but to those who believe it is the power of God. But the problem is men reject this. And back in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, Paul tells us what that looks like. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then Paul goes on in that rest of that chapter to say three different times, Therefore, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves. He gave them over to dishonorable passions. He gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Paul is showing us what plays out in a society where men and women reject the gospel. Where they embrace the gospel, verse 16 and 17, it's the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. Where they reject the gospel, it invites the wrath of God and God turns you over to your own devices. And Paul is saying where you see a people or you see a society that looks like the last half of Romans chapter 1, you are seeing God's judgment on those people. By the very things those people are doing is a sign in and of itself that they've rejected the gospel and God has handed them over to go their own way. It's scary to think about. We reject God's plan for our life. We reject that God's even the author of life. We reject God's plan for marriage. We reject God's plan for morality and goodness and virtue. Good is called evil and evil is called good. Folks, that's the kind of world we live in. And I hope you can see what the Bible is saying here. That when you see all these things going on, it's, it's evidence. It's evidence that we're under God's wrath. And these things that are happening are evidence in and of themselves that God's truth 
has been rejected. Paul gets to the end of chapter 1 and says people not only do these things that ought not to be done, they even try to get others in with them doing it and they celebrate others doing it. Folks, is this not a commentary on our day today? If it's not, I don't know what it is. But as Paul points out in Romans 2, it's not just the person who rejects God who is the problem. Chapter 2 points out the religious man who thinks that through the law and his good deeds and good works, he can make himself right in the eyes of God. Paul comes to Romans chapter 3 and he's an equal opportunity offender because he says all, have, it doesn't mean if it's the goody two-shoes or the pagan. Either if they're trying to, to get to heaven and, and be righteous in God's sight apart from Christ and apart from what God has, has done in and through Christ, Paul, Paul offends both sides and he says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who is righteous, no, not even one there is none who does good no not even one and again back to chapter 1 verse 20 what's so tragic in all this is how God has made himself known through the created order and through what he's put in the human conscience he's made himself known so that we are without excuse. The actions of lost people reveal that when they turn their back on God repeatedly, they reach a point where God turns his back on them and just simply lets them go their own way. I'm not saying they can't be brought to repentance. God can do anything. But God lets them go their own way. As Augustine said, the punishment for sin is sin. In other words, God greases the sliding board in the direction you, you are determined to go in. You say, would God do that? Well, listen to Psalm 81. God said, but my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. And so I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. What's the conclusion of all this? Again, as Paul says there in Romans 3. In Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are guilty. Good religious people. I'm talking about people apart from Christ. Good religious people as well as people that we would call bad out in society. All are guilty and all stand condemned apart from Christ. An analogy I've used is the Grand Canyon and every one of us lining up to try to jump across the Grand Canyon. Some would make it further than others. I have no doubt about that. But the fact of the matter is all of us would fall to our deaths. None of us would make it. Folks, that's the condition of the human race. You see what Paul's doing? He wants you and me to understand the bad news before we can really appreciate the good news. What God has done for lost sinners. 
the way God has intervened. And that's what I want you to see next. Thirdly, God's provision in Christ that is more valuable than all the riches in the world. Begin reading with me in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith. What we see in this passage here is the intervention of God. Aren't you grateful for the intervention of God? At the point of man's greatest need, God steps in, folks, and he does what we could never do. Righteousness is not earned, it is given, it is imputed. He says in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. This righteousness was witnessed, he says, by the law and the prophets. So all along, the law and the prophets have been trying to tell us something. The law and the prophets have been trying, even in the Old Testament, to tell us we cannot save ourselves. And the law and the prophets pointed towards God's Messiah who does save. Folks, you know, lest we be too hard on the Jew, let's admit that it can be so hard for religious people to believe that there is nothing they can do to obtain or add to their own salvation. Because at the heart and core of humanity, what do we want? We we want to say that I, I did something. Somehow or another, I contributed to my own salvation. We want to be able to say that. But we can't. God's revealed righteousness is a righteousness apart from the law. And in verse 22 he says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. There is no distinction because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so all, all who come to faith in Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, Jew or Gentile, you're guilty. But Jew or Gentile, either one can be saved in Christ. Jesus is the one who justifies. You know, people still get hung up on human works. I'm I'm pretty good. I've lived a decent life. If so-and-so that I know makes it into heaven, surely I'm going to make it into heaven. So many people just don't get it. They don't understand. 
Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sin. I want you to think about that word. In fact, I want you to think about several words he mentions here. Justified, the word justified, that's a courtroom word. Here we were in God's courtroom. We were condemned and we were under the sentence of death, spiritual death. But God justifies us because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. My punishment fell upon Christ at the cross and His righteousness falls upon me. The next word is redemption. Now that was language out of the slave market of the day. Slaves would be redeemed. Somebody would come along and pay the purchase price. Well, at the cross, Jesus purchased our salvation and set the captives free. We're not in bondage to to sin and Satan anymore. Christ has set us free. We've been set free from the power of sin and one of these days we'll even be set free from the presence of sin when we get to heaven. And the next word is propitiation. That's a big word that refers to the taking away of wrath. Remember, we were under God's wrath. And on the cross, all of the wrath of God against sin fell upon Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's justice had to be satisfied. And Christ took all of the wrath of God upon himself. Christ's death on the cross satisfied God's righteousness. He is our propitiatory sacrifice. Maybe it's easier to you to think of this phrase. He is God's atoning sacrifice. That's what propitiation refers to. And in verse 25, Paul points out, God in his forbearance passed over sins previously committed. And each year God did this on the day of atonement. Remember, when they would sprinkle the blood, the high priest on the mercy seat, God would pass over. God wasn't taking it away and completely forgiven it where a where a sacrifice never had to be made again, that would only happen through his son. But on the day of atonement, he would pass over their sins for yet another year. And he kept passing over, and he kept passing over, and he kept passing over. And all of those sacrifices pointed forward to that one perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who only had to be offered one time. What's the outcome of this? Paul says in verse 27, there is no room for boasting. Folks, there's not a one of us that's going to be able to get to heaven and kind of strut around. Yeah, look at me. Look at what I did to get here. All of us get there the same way through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And again, Paul points out here in verse 31, we don't want to nullify the law through faith. We establish the law. Why do you want to establish the law if the law can't say? He's saying here because when somebody reads the law and they read the word of God, hopefully they're going to see their sin and guilt and God's going to use the reading of the word. 
And what the Word is going to do is drive you to Jesus. Instead of saying, yes, this law is what's going to get me there. No, this law shows you that it can't get you there. And you can't get there yourself. It points you to the Messiah who can get you there. Folks, the gospel truth is that God does it. You don't do it. I don't do it. You and I were in deep weeds. We were in big time trouble. Big time trouble. We had nothing but death and hell, an eternity separated from a holy God. That's all we had in our future. And every one of us was in that same boat. And Jesus Christ died for your sin, your propitiation. He was buried. He rose again, ascended to the Father. He's opened the way to the Father. And there he is interceding for us. When we were in deep trouble and couldn't, he did. Now what's God call upon you and me to do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And all the glory goes to him. All of it. All of it goes to Him. On this Reformation Sunday, 504 years after Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door, do you understand the gospel? Statistically speaking, according to Pew Research today, many people, even in the church, don't know what the gospel is. Most people... Continue to think there is something that they can do to secure their own salvation. And I want you to see today, you can't. You need to look to Christ and Christ alone. And you need to come to Him. And secondly, I want you to see what the Reformers fought for so diligently. They fought for you and me to have a Bible in our own language. Blood has been shed by godly men and women so you and I can have a Bible on our lips and a language we can understand. And yet so many people, even in the church, never open it, never read it, never study it. <laughs> many evangelicals, again Pew Research Study, cannot name the four Gospels. According to Ed Stetzer in, the, in, the July, in a July 2015 article, 59% do not know that Jonah is a story in the Bible. Many think that Superman and Harry Potter are biblical stories. 54% think that the Hunger Games is a story that's in the Bible. And according to LifeWay research, 45% believe that there are many pathways to God. Just choose your own way. Folks, that is, that is so tragic. Can I ask you to do something, those who know Christ and have come to Christ? Remember the people who have shed their blood and died, that you can have a copy of the Word of God in your language. 
Would you recommit this morning to reading and studying in a systematic way God's Word? Hide God's Word in your heart. And I want to speak to those a moment who are looking for a church home. We'd love to be your church home. But if God were to lead you elsewhere, just make sure you find a church that preaches the Bible. That opens up the Bible and preaches the Word of God to you. Don't dare let your, lead your family to land down somewhere where the Sunday school teachers and the pastors never even get up and do an exposition of the Scripture. Run, run from a place like that. Land down where the Word of God is preached and taught. Would you stand, please?